So I'm Libby Weber. I'm uh, very grateful that STR gave me the opportunity to get to interview Nikolai Foss, who has been a fairly longtime co-author for me, uh, as well as a mentor in this field. So uh, thank you again for that wonderful opportunity. I've actually learned a lot about him that I didn't know, which is fascinating to me. You'll learn more, I think. <laughs> Great. So I'm going to do a brief introduction before we get started asking uh, questions for him. Whoops, there we go. So uh, just a few of his selected accomplishments. There are many, many more that we'll be discussing uh, likely today. So he got his PhD in 1993 from CDS. Uh, and has spent 22 years there. Uh, he started out from assistant to associate and went to full. Then he went to Bocconi for a couple of years, uh, and now he's back at CBS again. Sorry, uh, to, sorry to interrupt, Libby. We're not seeing the second slide. Oh, okay. Let me try to share again. Let's Thank you. See. Are you seeing it now? Perfect. Thank okay. you. Okay. <laughs> so he's published over 224 articles in review journals, 102 book chapters, 26 books, and many other things. Uh, these numbers might not even be accurate, right? This was taken off of his CBS bio, and they're changing all the time. He's just incredibly productive. Uh, he has, uh, as of yesterday, <laughs> 41,496 citations in Google Scholar and has been recognized as being um, an incredibly highly cited researcher by several institutions. Uh, he's a member of Academia Europea and a fellow of uh, Strategic Management Society. He was also the 2020 chairperson of the Behavioral Strategy Interest Group, and he's a knight. Uh, <laughs> knighted by Denmark, which we're going to talk about because that's pretty <laughs> cool. <laughs> so with that, I'm actually going to stop sharing uh, so that you can focus on Nikolai. And I'm going to start by asking you, what's the story about how you ended up in academia? Well, I, I like the way you put it, ended up. That sounds <laughs> like washing onto the shore of some remote island, which is... <laughs> You know, probably a good metaphor anyway, but I don't think there's a particular story. I was an economics student at the University of Copenhagen. I'm not very serious about it, I guess. Um, but then, then suddenly, um, the third year of my bachelor program, I developed this very strong fascination with certain parts of macroeconomics, more specifically something called new classical ma ma macroeconomics. And I, you know, I got fascinated by all the uh, the. The, the debate and the conflict and the shouting and so on. It was very exciting. Uh, and then a little bit later, I got into the whole debate about the micro foundations of macroeconomics, which was very, very important at that time. So we were talking late 1980s here. Uh, then a few years later, I wrote a master thesis with the, the top grade. Um, and my, my advisor asked me if I, I, I was interested in becoming an, an economics PhD student. And of course I was, and I got enrolled in the program and I actually was uh, an economics PhD student for nine months until they ran out of money. Uh, they, they just didn't have any money left for me. And so I was, I was on the market, but then I was very quickly hired by, by, by the Copenhagen Business School. This was in 
1989, I think November. So I, I arrived at CBS, which was a super, super small, very provincial outfit back then. No, almost no research culture. Of course, that has changed a lot since because CBS is this, Copenhagen Business School is this massive behemoth almost uh, with a lot of research now. Uh, but as, as you also, as you also said, I've had most of my career there, uh, except those almost four years at Bocconi. So, so that's I a story, basically, how I ended up. Oh, I'm sorry? That, that's a story. <laughs> that's a story. So and did I hear you correctly? You were in a PhD program for nine months? Is that what yeah. you just said? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They didn't have any money left. So, <laughs> so I was going to ask you uh, to give advice, uh, if you could go back and give advice to yourself, as a PhD student, what would that be? But perhaps since you've only been in a program for nine months, maybe we no, could ask no, to give no, you no, advice yeah. to PhD no, students no, I was in the today. Economics, I was in an economics PhD program for nine months. Then I changed basically to, to something like a program in management. Uh, but, you know, Europe in, you're, you're not, you really have no, literally no idea of how, what Europe in, the early 1990s was like in terms of doctoral education. Um, the way it worked was that you were given three years, very generous pay, and no one basically cared much about what you were doing. Zero coursework, uh, zero, no PhD courses. I've taken one PhD course uh, in my career and that's all. So quite predictably, uh, most of those who were in the program had difficulties choosing a topic and almost no one finished in time. There was uh, very, very little mentoring most faculty didn't publish, many didn't have PhD degrees. It was super loose. <laughs> it has that too has changed a lot since then. Um, so, you know, I, I think many, particularly in the US have difficulties understanding how, in many ways, how backwards it really was back in, back, back in the 1990s and perhaps even early 2000s in, in, in Europe. So with very little mentorship then, how did you decide on your dissertation topic? Well, as you can get, I had an almost complete freedom. So what I did was I, I wrote seven or perhaps eight, I've, I've forgotten the exact number, but seven or eight essays on, on various things loosely connected by, you know, theory, the theory of the firm. And of course, I wrote them all in Danish. This was 1992. That's, that's the year I handed my, my thesis in. Uh, all of these papers got published eventually, but of course, only after I had I, I translated them into English. But I, I wrote it all in Danish. <laughs> it was just crazy. So who would you say were early influences on your work? Yeah, um, so when I was a, an, an economics student, I, I read people like Schumpeter, Israel Kirstner. I was interested in entrepreneurship. Friedrich Hayek, Axel Lyonhofer. I guess these were my my initial influences. Uh, I had an advisor, Christian Knussen, who didn't publish much, or really didn't publish much in the journals at least, but he was extremely well connected. So he would bring in people like uh, Richard Langlois and Sid Winder, they became very important influences. Uh, there was an English economist, Brian Lowesby, who was a huge uh, initial influence on me. Uh, another influence, early influence, was uh, a Scottish economist, George Richardson, uh, a fantastic but neglected thinker. Uh, Richardson had left academia um, 
in the early 1970s because he felt no one really paid any attention to his ideas. So he became the, the chief executive of, of uh, Oxford University Press and the, I think the chairman of the board of directors of the Esmolian Museum in, in Oxford, a really a big person in the whole Oxford community. And then he decided to re-enter academia and make contact uh, with me. And uh, we had a lot of, we, we exchanged a lot of ideas and viewpoints and so on. George actually suggested that I, that I absolutely must leave academia, get a real and more prosperous life, you know, as, as an executive or something. Uh, so that was George Richardson. Then Oliver Williamson, I also met him relatively early, mid-1990s. Uh, and he's maybe my single greatest influence. I think the basic perspective I work from, still work from, is fundamentally a transaction cost economics perspective. Um, I'm also a huge fan of... Um, People like uh, Harold Demsetz, uh, Armin Elfsham, Stephen Chung, the whole economic property rights approach. But, you know, scholars who manage to use basic economic tools in a highly intelligent way to really, really illuminate the, the way the real world works in an untrivial manner. And I, you know, I, I continue to be, be amazed at the power of, of basic price theory and microeconomics to, to do these things, illuminate. Uh, and, and make the, way, the, the workings of the world comprehensible to us. I think that's more. I was also involved in something called Druid that many of you probably have heard of. You may have been to the Druid conferences. I was one of the uh, founders of Druid. I think that was 95 or 96. So uh, I got into the, uh, the whole European evolutionary economic scene, which was very big in the 1990s. Uh, late 1990, I met people like Jay Barney, Bjorn Wernerfeld, who was Danish, uh, Cynthia Montgomery, you know, I also met Dan Leventhal, Dick Rumelz, John Hannan, Howard Aldrich. So while I was still a PhD student or very young faculty, um, what else is there? I corresponded with, uh, this, this was back in the day when you would still write letters. I corresponded with Jim March, who tried to convince me to, to come to Stanford to do a PhD with him. So I, I was very, very lucky and privileged to get in contact with very important elite people in the field uh, at a very early stage of my career. That of, of course, was a tremendous inspiration. So we're still talking mid the mid-1990s. Yeah. So you're known for a lot of your work. You mentioned evolutionary economics. You mentioned TCE. But one of the things that people typically associate you with is the micro foundations view. And so can you tell us a little bit about how that research stream came about? Right. So I, I mentioned already that as a student, I was very interested in the micro foundations of macroeconomics. So the whole micro foundations debate is basically a longstanding debate in economics. Uh, and I very vividly remember being very puzzled when I was taught macroeconomics about the sort of the status of all that macroeconomics talk. We had the, 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 the big I, the capital I investments, and there was a capital Y, you know, total production. And there was some kind of functional relation between them. But, you know, I was puzzling over how is that relation? What, what is in that functional specification? You know, where are the, where are the micro foundations? And that's, that's really one of the reasons why I took an interest in the work of, of people like, like Hayek, who I mentioned earlier, Leyenhofwood, uh, Ludwig Lachmann, and so on, because these people were, they were all about uh, micro foundations and they were skeptical of macroeconomics, particularly because they saw that macroeconomics didn't have uh, strong micro foundations. Uh, 
So uh, uh, then I met in 2003 or four Tepo Feline. Uh, and Tepo and I discussed the micro foundations theme a, a, a great deal. And then we wrote up our 2005 essay and got published in the strategic organization. And th that might have been the opening salvo in, 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 in the micro foundations project. You know, I, I personally, I never thought it was a big deal because it's, again, it's a, it's a traditional longstanding debate in economics that in a sense was just transferred to a management context. So I was a little bit surprised that, that the whole micro foundations thing became pretty influential, which it did. So on that note, do you think that strategic management society would actually even have a behavioral strategy interest group if not for your introduction of micro foundations to the field? I, I think so because, uh, you know, Behavioral strategy was defined as a subfield in 2011 when, when Tom Powell and his co-authors published that special issue in strategic management journal on, on behavioral strategy. But of course, uh, psychology ideas have been used in strategy for a much longer time. Uh, so yeah, I, I guess there would have been a behavioral strategy subfield, but um, I think, actually, I think the even, even in behavioral strategy, we may still have a problem with micro foundations because a lot of what passes as, micro as behavioral strategy is, isn't necessarily particularly uh, micro foundational, you know, organizational cognition stuff, uh, parts of the behavioral theory of the firm. It's not always that clear where the micro foundations actually are. So do you see then a big opportunity for researchers to actually dig into micro foundations in that behavioral yeah. strategy field? I do. I do. There's, there's a lot to do here. So uh, in, in terms of what, what may be the next frontiers in behavioral strategy, um, I, I think one very, very important issue that we need to be much more serious about is radical or deep or Nietzschean uncertainty or even ignorance. And we, we, we all recognize that uncertainty that goes beyond probabilistic risk is, is, is important, but we, we try to get around it with various probabilistic tools. So we, we talk about ambiguity and when we get formal about ambiguity, try to formalize it. We, we talk about decision makers not knowing which probability distribution actually describes or is, is relevant and that's ambiguity. Or we may talk about probability intervals, uh, or we may go all patient, but you know it's all it's all probabilistic. It doesn't get around or get to the uh, to get to the heart of the matter of uh, Nietzschean uncertainty. Um, the whole heuristics and biases program, which is so super important in behavioral strategy, is also at the end of the day, it's also fundamentally probabilistic. Um, so. Of course, we have, we have notions of sense-making, which is going very mu much in the right direction, uh, building models to comprehend and make sense of an uncertain future. But again, we don't know much about how we construct these models, how we, how we actually engage in sense-making, what are the beliefs that we um, decide to accept, what are the beliefs that we discard when we sense-make, um, do we need to be have coherent beliefs necessarily? You know, there are lots of things that have to do with beliefs and belief formation dynamics that, that we know extremely little about. These are things that I'm exploring at the moment with, with my postdoc, Timo Erik. 
So I think this is truly um, a major issue, uh, really a frontier issue. Another one, um, which is very relevant, given that you're interviewing me, is uh, what you may call behavioral organization design or even behavioral transaction cost economics. So uh, what, what happens to, uh, to contractual outcomes? What happens to governance outcomes if we take um, cognitive psychology, motivational psychology, social psychology much more seriously than we have done in, 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 in the organizational design field and certainly in transaction cost economics. So I would, I would, I would think of, of, of your work in, in, in this respect as, as very much the frontier stuff and as not, along with work by, by Jackson, Jackson Nickerson, Kyle Mayer and so on. Uh, my my co-author Ambra Mazzelli says that um, distributed cognition in organizations, and not just in the upper echelons, but all over the organization, as it were, is is very important and, and neglected, and, and she's probably right. But now now we're doing a Zoom meeting, and um, I'm, I'm thinking we have all these Zoom meetings, and we can transcribe a lot of what's going on, and it is it's a fantastic data. Potentially, it's a it has, it's, it's the opportunity of fantastic data sets, isn't it? If we can transcribe and, and do something with all these massive amounts of texts um, reflecting very much distributed cognition, I guess. <laughs> Computer-mediated distributed cognition. So I'm, I'm sure I'm, there are many other issues out there than the, the three I just mentioned. I'm not at all surprised that you turned our uh, Zoom interview into a data collection opportunity. <laughs> and so this leads me to the next question that I'm sure is on everybody's mind. And that's, how do you stay so productive? Is it coffee? Do you not sleep? Like, what is it? Because you have so many papers that you publish and so many projects that you're managing all the time. Yeah, uh, well, uh, I may have published many papers, but uh, Certainly, not of all, not of all of them are, are so-called A plus papers. Many, in fact, most of my my articles have appeared in in lesser so-called lesser journals, and I think you need that background. Uh, that said, I I guess it's a it's a nice number, and I, I think I'm a disciplined researcher, researcher, and I, I approach it in a very almost Tayloristic or Taylorite way, uh, meaning that I I. I literally strive to write minimum 500 words every single day, every single day, including Sundays. And I've, I've always done this. And if you do that uh, and you just stick to that routine and that discipline, I mean, you, you'll end up getting a certain output. Uh, I've, never, I've never had writer's block. Uh, I work on many, many papers at the same time. So uh, if I feel that I'm stuck with, with something, I may pass it on to a co-author and then I can work on another project. And I, I guess I'm also one of those persons who really learn by writing rather than by reading. I, I'm a little bit ashamed to admit it, but I don't follow the, the, the journals that regularly. Um, I don't read that many articles. I try to read all the classics, of course, but I'm not super up to date with the recent issues of the big journals to be entirely honest. So I have so many questions <laughs> from that answer. Uh, the first one is, I noticed when I was doing a little research about you that your mother is a published author. Do you think yeah. that discipline of writing 500 words a day is coming I, I from guess. her? It, it, of course, you're right. That's also <laughs> genetic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
<laughs> I'm just amazed. Would you advise, uh, you know, junior scholars and PhD students to pick up that discipline, 500 words a day? Not necessarily 500, but I, I think it's, it's a good approach that is fruitful in the long run to try to write something every day. When you're young, when you're young faculty, you may be overwhelmed by you know, all the teaching that you have to think about, the, the faculty meetings, the, the seminars with exciting speakers and so on. And it's, your, your research may very easily step into the background, unfortunately. But of course, there's the, the tenure clock and so on. You've got to produce. And, uh, you know, forcing yourself to write 300 words every day, um, investing one, one and a half to two hours minimum every day. I think most people can do that. I mean, that guarantees that you'll get something written. Uh, I mean, I, if you're young faculty, the, the, perhaps the biggest challenge is to build that pipeline, which you must have. Because uh, given rejection probabilities, given uh, publishing lacks and so on, no one can survive and be successful in academia without a pretty substantial portfolio or pipeline. And I think if, you are, if you're a senior scholar and you want to publish at a reasonably high level and with reasonable regularity, you've got to have a pipeline of about, I would say minimum 10 papers, 10 promising papers. And building that pipeline, it's just very hard work. But I, I, something like that, you know, a daily, mindless almost routine can help you a lot. It has, it has worked for me. I think you, you, you may be well advised to look at what professional, really professional writers say about this. So, for example, Ernst Hemingway uh, is someone who thought very much about the craft of writing. And he offers this kind of advice, just sit down for three hours every day, super concentrated, total silence, put those four or 500 words down on paper, leave something for the next day. So you have to, you, you, that's, that's something you can start from, right? I, I was actually quite inspired by, by his, his advice. I forgot where he wrote this, but he, I think he has a, an essay on, on writing which is quite profound, but also very useful, very practical. That's wonderful advice, I think, for all of us, <laughs> even some of us who aren't so junior anymore. <laughs> right. <laughs> so um, the other thing I was going to ask, and you briefly touched on this, you said 10 promising papers you should have in your pipeline. So how does that translate into number of projects, right? Because not all of the projects that you start end up being promising. So how many do you typically manage? What is your optimal number that you'd like to manage? And how do you do it? Right. I, th I think I, I work at a, at a point of time, I work, on, I work on 10 different papers. And then there are probably 20 to 30 papers that are more dormant. Uh, I don't work actively on them at the moment. They may be rejects that we, uh, they're on the market again, and we, but they need to be you know, revised before we can resubmit them and so on. Um, yeah, of course it's, it's challenging. There's, there's a lot of complexity associated with managing uh, up to 40 papers at a time. And uh, I don't know, potentially as many co-authors, right? <laughs> uh, 
but I, I guess I try to realize all projects that I start and, and most end up being published somewhere, not necessarily in SMJ or organization science, or, but in, in lesser journals, but you know, I, I'm European, I can afford to also, to also publish in, in, in the lesser journals. <laughs> So you mentioned co-authors, uh, yes. and I know that you have many, many co-authors. So uh, just to think about from a PhD perspective, we're often asked you know, in uh, doctoral consortiums about finding them. Do you have any advice about finding co-authors? Or how do you go about it? Well, usually co-authors find, find me nowadays, I guess. I, but I also have this stable set of co-authors that I've worked with for many years. Uh, at least two cases for more than 20 years. Uh, but this is a very, very important question you raised there because co-authors who are, are, are reliable and smart and so on, they are incredible assets. And uh, once you have identifi identified them, you want, to, you want to stick with them or to them. Uh, how, do, how should juniors do this? I, I, I think juniors just shouldn't be afraid of reaching out to senior people, right? But I think it also, uh, that due diligence may also be in order here because not all seniors um, are necessarily people you may want to work with. They're, they're, you've, you've heard the stories, right? There are academic sharks around. So find someone who, um, who has a good reputation. I mean, there, there are reputational mechanisms at work in our field, right? They are not perfect, but people do have, do have their reputation. So make, make, make inquiries, find out. And also perhaps, uh, of course, there are signals. If, uh, if, if people publish a lot, um, they may too be, be too busy, quite simply. They may be, uh, they may want to help you, and they may be enthusiastic and so on, but they just don't have the time. And that's something I've seen again and again and again with junior colleagues who set up a relationship, uh, co-authoring relationship with some senior, typically over a huge, large geographical distance, and uh, the senior is just too busy with his or her daily work committees and his or her own projects and so on, and. Forgets about the, the junior colleague who's in a different part of the world, right? And this, this can end up badly. It can end up in conflict because of misunderstandings. You know, what's, what's a real coordination problem may become a cooperation problem and then you have conflict. So, but don't, don't hold back, don't be shy, reach out, talk to people. Of course, it's standard advice, attend the conferences, listen to people's presentation send them your papers. Uh, you, that's perhaps that's one way in which you can test seniors. If, if you send your papers to them and they, they actually offer useful advice, not just niceties, but say something constructive that you can build from, then they may be potential uh, co-authors, I suppose. So I'm gonna ask you a more personal question. Do you remember how we met? Because we've been co-authoring now for a while. No, sadly, I don't. <laughs> that, okay. that, that may be old age. <laughs> <laughs> we actually met through Facebook. Oh, really? 
We did, yes. Uh, I had commented on a post that you had written about uh, something about transaction cost economics, and you had okay. asked me to send you my dissertation. And that's how our co-author relationship started. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. Yeah, well, so be, be on the social media. <laughs> Which you're quite active <laughs> so on them, as well. <laughs> Yeah. So um, just another question about managing co-authors. Have you ever had to walk away from a bad co-author relationship? And if so, what kind of advice would you give about that? Yeah, I, 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 I have. I, have uh, I guess this is a little bit too public to share the, the absolute <laughs> horror stories that I could share uh, with you. Um, but there are a few incidents, a few incidents, uh, but... Uh, I, I work with all kinds of co-author too, I guess. Um, there's, there's a guy who's extremely enthusiastic in the beginning, but that basically disappears for the rest of the project. And you have to do, do all this, the work. Uh, then, there's, then, there's, then there's a guy who suddenly, unexpectedly, and for no good reason, reverses the author order <laughs> to his advantage. Um, they're the guys who stay incommunicado for, for months or years even, right? But uh, mostly my, my co-author relationships have been very good. Um, relatively few have. In fact, I think also the very, also the, most of the bad ones have also not broken down. I, I tend to avoid, you know, the, what economists would call the no trade outcome, right? Even with a very bad co-author, it's usually possible to get something done. But, you know, you, you just, you finish the projects, you move on. You never work with this guy again. But that's, you know, there's so much asymmetric information in, in our field that this is unavoidable. You have to learn people's type uh, through working with them. That's just how it is. So let's talk a little bit about the writing process with co-authors. Because, you know, the idea generation sort of sometimes naturally flows, right? But then you're writing a manuscript together and somebody's writing over other people's words. How do you manage that? How do you feel about that when your co-authors rewrite, you know, what you've written? <laughs> Very apropos. <laughs> this is a personal question because I do this okay, journal all the, the time. Uh, people <laughs> who are listening may, may not know that, that you like to rewrite stuff a great deal and you know to 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 quote Greta Thunberg how dare you right <laughs> no I, I I I think you must be humble here um most of the time the the read up rewrite is justified uh none of us gets it right the first time absolutely none of us uh, I certainly don't and I'm I'm not the most lucid writer in the world either uh but of course I want to see what happened uh, what did you do with my, my beautifully crafted prose? So uh, track changes always. Uh, that's, that's absolutely essential, of course. So I see a question in the chat and we can uh, go to questions uh, from the audience or in the chat if we'd like, although I have a couple of more, couple more to ask. But there was a question that I'm very curious how you will answer it because it was, uh, asking about how you handle work-life balance. Yeah, yeah. How I hand, how I handle work-life. How balance. you handle work-life balance? <laughs> uh, 
Well, I, I, luckily I have a wife who is good at fighting my, my workaholic tendencies, I guess. Um, that's, that's otherwise I, I would be working around the clock, I guess. <laughs> Unless she sometimes put up, I mean, she sometimes put down the, the her foot and says, stop. Yeah, it's got to end. And, um, I do often uh, recall that the only time that you're like, I'm on vacation, my wife has mandated it. Right. So. <laughs> I, then I have a neighbor who is a medical professor. He's a heart specialist. And my, my study has a window which is facing towards the, the road. He'll often pass by and sometimes he'll look at me and he'll, he'll, uh, he'll do this and he'll look, but he'll look very worried. <laughs> uh, I, I, you're working too much is, is the clear message. So uh, my wife and my neighbor are the are the persons who make who who, who help me with the work life balance, I suppose. So your wife also you mentioned is in academia. I've noticed that you co-authored with her as well. Yeah. And so how has that worked compared to your typical co-author experiences? Well, it's it, strangely it's it's it isn't that different. Because we um, we have very complementary skills. Um, I don't know if you know the, the distinction. I think there was the, the British philosopher Isaiah Berlin who made this distinction between the hedgehog, who is the guy who knows one big thing, right, and the fox who knows many smaller things. And and I'm the fox, and uh, Kirsten is very very much the hedgehog. She's extremely good at concentrating on one thing in a very deep deep way and she, and also she tends to approach everything with one particular analytical lens namely uh, the the economics of property rights approach that i mentioned earlier actually we are we are putting together a book um that's that synthesizes our work on the economics of property rights and how it can illuminate management theory in general and strategy in particular so we it's just called the property rights approach to strategy should come out next year this may be the last thing we do together, but let's see. Is there a reason for that? No, well, <laughs> fitting to end with a with a with a sort of collected collected papers volume, isn't it? So on this topic, actually, there is a reason because she's she's going to I think she's going to retire next year, so take relatively early retirement. So that's that's a reason. So that will, you know, be the end then of your dual career situation, but you've been yeah, living that yeah. for a long time. And so yeah, I was yeah. wondering, we have many uh, scholars with dual career situations. Do you have yeah. advice about that? Oh, God. <laughs> I mean, our, our situation was really uh, crazy. So uh, Kirsten, my wife, she's a professor in, in Bergen, Norway, and in Copenhagen. But at one point, I was, of course, in Milano at the, the Universitat Bocconi. Uh, she was in Bergen. Uh, our daughter was in Oxford. Uh, we still had a house in Denmark. And the, the, the only permanent resident in the house that we kept in Denmark was, was actually our dog. <laughs> so we would, one, one of us would go back to take care of the dog, or there would be a dog sitter. But um, we, we, that went on for about four years. It was challenging. It was challenging. It requires a lot of patience. And, Adapt adaptability. <laughs> of course, that's also that was the main reason I, I had to leave uh, what was really a very good position at at, at Bocconi. 
Okay, so um, I want to switch gears here for a minute and talk a little bit about your many awards. So can we start with the fact that you've been knighted by Denmark? How did that come to be? <laughs> and do we have to call you Sir Nikolai Fotz? No, no, no. It, it doesn't come with the honor, and, but if you want to, you can, you can do that. <laughs> uh, no, the, this is... Um, this honor that you mentioned is something called the, the Order of the Dannebro. Dannebro is the Danish flag, which uh, ostensibly is the world's uh, oldest national flag. But the um, the order itself was started in, I believe, 1671 for originally 50 members of royal noble rank. But what it is today it, it is it's a it's a clever, low cost means uh, of honoring. Uh, and rewarding uh, servants of the modern Danish state for you know civil or military service. So you, you, they typically give them to high-ranking officers uh, in the military or in the police. But there, there are a few professors who are rewarded every year with this with this distinction. But you don't you don't have to call me sir. I don't I don't think <laughs> you even can do that. That's an English thing. <laughs> so I'll start uh, addressing you as Sir Nikolai in my email. Well, well, if you insist. <laughs> so you've been, you know, honored with many other awards. Are there any of these that you're particularly proud of? I mean, there are many best paper awards. Uh, I saw that, you know, a leading newspaper had cited you as one of the most influential economists in Denmark. You know, are any of these particularly, you know, uh, meaningful as far as, you know. There, there actually is one that is particularly meaningful. And this was uh, becoming a fellow of the Strategic Management Society. That was that was a big thing for me. Uh, Jay Barney gave uh, a great, funny, and very, very uh, generous speech, induction speech. So that was that was really special. And this was, at, this was in Paris for the Paris SMS conference. And Paris is my, my, my favorite city. So uh, it, it truly was special for that reason too. So we've talked about your honors. We've talked about, you know, what you're known for. Is there a paper of yours that has not received as much attention that you think is, you know, something substantial that you would like to see receive more attention? Yeah, the, the, it's, it's a little bit odd, but I have a paper that, has just been published. It's an SMJ paper. Uh, it's called Economizing and Strategizing. And it's with uh, Christian Asmussen and with Kirsten, my wife, and with Peter Klein. And it is uh, based on the distinction between economizing approaches like the RPV to, uh, to strategy and uh, strategizing approaches like the Porter Positioning Approach that Oliver Williamson introduced in 1999. And most people tend to think of, of these two uh, ways of thinking about strategy as orthogonal, basically. Uh, but we, we show that they are, by means of a formal model, that they are that there are all sorts of relations between economizing uh, and, and strategizing, and that therefore these two approaches interact and often interact in surprising ways. And I think the, the paper's message is super powerful and super important, but here's the problem. It's a modeling paper. It's a formal model, a game theoretical model. And um, unfortunately, it seems, it seems to be still the situation that formal 
former model papers don't seem to be read and cited a lot in strategy. So I'm a little bit worried. I think we have a very important, powerful message, but I'm afraid that the packaging will uh, may, might obscure the message. So I guess what, what we need to do is we need to produce an, a hard business review version of it or something like that. But I, my, my fear is that this paper, which actually took us 20 years to write, 20 years, so it's, it's based on a, on a, on a paper that, that, that Kist and I wrote back in 2000 or 2001. And then we first enrolled Peter Klein in the team, uh, and then uh, Christian Asposen towards the end. And then finally we got it out after 20 years. So you, you, you can imagine why I would like this paper to become influential and cited and so on, but it, it may not, but let's see. Okay, at this point uh, in the time, I think we can turn to uh, the audience to address some of your questions. We have some in chat already. Wow. Um, but if people would also like to raise their hand, we could allow you to ask questions directly to Nikolai. All right, I, I haven't kept track of what's happening in the chat. Should I take a look? All right, look, I'll look, look for some of oh, them here for you. Okay. So somebody asked about your 500 words per day. How much yeah, is writing asking. versus rewriting? That was this is, this is This is new writing, Louise. Rewriting doesn't count. <laughs> or writing an op-ed doesn't count. I mean, this is writing something for, for, on a new pro paper project. And uh, we also have a question from Abby here. Uh, and what did you write about today? Uh, I wrote something um, in a book that Peter Klein and I do, are doing. This is actually a trade book, a popular book with um, public affairs uh, press. So the book is called um, The Myth of the Bossless uh, Company, Why Managers Still Matter. And it's, it's a critique of you know, the bossless comp company narrative that people like Gary Hamble and, and others have been promoting for many years. And we, we, we're basically just telling managers that what they're doing, that when, when they're exercising the managerial authority makes sense and hierarchy makes sense and so on. So in a sense, very old fashioned, but I think it needs to be said. That's what I did today. Then I also worked on a, uh, on a paper with Jens Schmidt uh, on ecosystems, which is one of my streams. A paper with Jens Schmidt on, and, and David Tees. So another question is, uh, where do you get all the inspiration for your, the research questions for all of the papers in your pipeline? I think it's snowballing to, to a large extent. Once you, have, um, once you have a stream that you're working on, you're constantly pushing forward. You're uncovering new problems that you need to address that perhaps no one else has, has looked at. Uh, so I guess that's, that's how it works. There are also many, them, if you're interested in many things and you have different streams going on, uh, that you, you'll probably notice relations or interdependencies or complementarities even between those themes. Um, and you may exploit them. And write a paper about that. 
Okay, the next question we have is from a student. So the student is asking, uh, is there any connection between the behavioral strategy and OB divisions? Uh, and, you know, what do you see, you know, as potential synergies there? Right, that, that's a very, very good question because uh, you often get this sometimes a little bit, maybe a sneering remark, right? Well, behavioral strategy, that's just OB, right? Those of us who, who take an interest in behavioral strategy, we've, we've, had, we've had this kind of reaction. I'm sure you have, Libby. Uh, but it's not, because uh, behavioral strategy is using psychology insights, and of course, therefore, also OB insights to say something about uh, something that happens typically at a higher level of analysis. Ultimately, it's using psychology to say something about competitive advantage, profitability, value creation, appropriation, and so on. So uh, OB is, I'm not, a, I don't know much about OB, but it's mainly a single level, right? People and groups. Uh, but behavioral strategy, in my view, should be micro-foundational, meaning there must be at least two levels. Got to have the firm level, the firm outcomes, and you also need to have the individual group level, level there. So uh, yes, there are, OB can inform behavioral strategy, but it's certainly not the same thing. Not at all. So I'm going to add my own question there too. Uh, TMT research, right, does have yeah. those two levels, but sometimes people limit behavioral strategy to just TMT, you know, psychological influences on the firm. What right. are your thoughts about that? Should it be broader than that? It, it absolutely should be broader to, to think of behavioral strategy as purely an upper agilence or higher agilence thing is, is just wrong. Um, and think about work motivation, for example. The work motivation, if, if, you, if you happen to have employees who are particularly are motivated at a high level in a, and in a way that is beneficial to the company, say in a particular pro-social manner, that may be a strategic asset. And you, you will have to care about that uh, work motivation and you'll have to leverage it. And you'll have to put in place systems for tapping into that work, and motiva work motivation and maintaining it, expanding it, perhaps. And that, of course, requires that you, 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 that you are thinking about the lower levels in the organization, about middle managers and people on the, on the shop floor. And I, I think someone like Don Hamburg is very much aware of this. So he, in, he has this nice piece in, um, in AMR a few years ago where he's reflecting on his, his piece with Mason. And it says that one of the one of the big problems in the in the current team T stream is that there's a disconnect between what's going on at the top level and um, at the lower level at lower levels in the organization research wise. So he's, I think he's pointing towards something what I just said. I think you know I'd love to hear that answer because I do think that there's a lot of you know potential opportunity there yeah. for more research. But I think about about the research that we've been doing. I mean, we, we've been looking from a behavioral point of view at um, exchanges between organizational units and the frictions, the conflicts that may erupt, and how top management may have to step in and you know, resolve these kind of issues. That's behavioral strategy as, as far as I can see, uh, or behavioral transaction cost economics, if you like. <laughs> it's not something you can think meaningfully about if your own, if your sole focus is the top management team. Although, of course, obviously, it goes without saying that they are super important in the equation. Exactly. 
So we actually have a live question here. All right. Please go ahead. Hello. Thank you very much for um, letting me ask a question. So um, I'm a really young researcher. And when I was reading about you, the, the most astonishing part about you was about that you were looking for a conflict in research. You were disagreeing with theories and trying to counter ideas and thoughts. What do you think about this? When we look at European research culture and American research culture, how is this going to evolve in the future? And what is the importance of disagreement going to be? Very, very good and interesting uh, question. Hmm. You know, partly I think uh, it's it's a it's a personality issue, isn't it? I mean, some some people are more belligerent than other people, right? And if you're a little bit, if you seek confrontation to some extent, you know, you 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 may want to, you may like to criticize those theories that you should you think should be called out, and you may write it up, and you may send it to a journal. So my, my, my first major paper, I guess, uh, was is an organization science article from 96, which is very, very critical of something called the knowledge-based view of the, of the firm. Um, that Jason Spender, he's here today, he's one of the, he's one of the representatives of that. And or, or, to put it more precisely, it was very, very critical of a particular claim in that stream of research, namely that you could explain the existence of firms without making use of the notion of opportunism. And I attacked that and Jay Barney, who was the editor at that time, liked that critique a lot and he accepted the paper and published it. And I, I think that the journals actually like conflict to some extent, or put it more nicely, disagreement, right? Because disagreement means, to some extent, it means excitement. It means more readers. It may mean more citations. It may mean that the impact factor of the journal goes up. So I don't think that you as a young researcher should necessarily shy away from, from say a more conflictual approach, criticizing what is out there. But of course you cannot just criticize. You have to bring something to the table that is your own positive contribution. But if, if you can do both, fine, I guess. But then you, you also raised the, the, uh, the, the uh, point that could there be a distinction here between the European and US research culture? Possibly, possibly. Because in, in seminars and so on, I have, I have noticed that you know, US people tend to be very, very polite and nice and constructive. Uh, whereas sometimes when you get your US review reports back, they kill you massively. Whereas in Europe, perhaps it's, it's almost opposite. People are sometimes extremely aggressive and nasty in seminars. Uh, some countries in Europe more than others perhaps, but that's what I've noticed. But perhaps European reviewers, they are a little bit more lenient. This, this may be, I may be entirely wrong, but that's, that's how I have experienced it, at least in the past. Is that, was that the kind of response you were looking for, Eve? Yes, yes. So, but the, the very interesting part you always provide is that you only not only brought into the conflict, but you had the intellect to build upon it and then change the research. So that was really nice. So thank you for answering us. Thank you. 
Thank you very much for your question. Uh, we're going to pause just a minute here because uh, I've been notified by Joe that we need to do a screenshot. So please turn on your cameras for just a moment so we can memorialize this interview. <laughs> and also, thank you, Libby, and also memorialize the record uh, number of attendees. So, um, <laughs> all right. So, uh, everyone, if you could turn on your camera, we're just going to take a screenshot and bear with me. I need to take two. Uh, for different frames. One, two, three. Hold on. One and second one. One, two, three. Excellent. Back to you, Libby. Thanks. Okay, we have more questions in the chat. Uh, this might be my favorite question asked by Louise. Uh, is, the, is the dog part of the work-life balance equation uh, as well, or just the neighbors and your wife? <laughs> very much part of the equation. That's a, it's a great question, Louise. You should get a dog if you don't have one already. We should, we should have all two have horses. A, we should all, it wasn't directed at you in particular. We should all have a dog. They do wonderful things for you. Uh, they, you get out of your study or your office, you need to walk, you walk the hound at least twice per day. You have to do problem solving stuff with it. Uh, it gives you a perspective on life, you know, it, it shows you that it's possible to just be totally calm and think about nothing and have a good life. <laughs> they are super loyal creatures, of course. Uh, usually in a very good mood. So yeah, I, I can very much recommend it. The, the, the dog is very much part of the work-life balance equation for me, certainly. And what is your dog's name, Nikolai? My, my daughter named it Simba. You can, you can, you can guess why. <laughs> very nice. It, it, it's a she, so it's, it's entirely wrong. <laughs> Yeah. My dog happens to be named after Williamson, so Is that right? <laughs> I was curious if you also had gone that route. <laughs> yeah. Okay, we have uh, more questions. So we've talked already about your micro foundations and what aspects do you believe uh, should be pursued for the research, but there's also a question about your work in dynamic capabilities and what do you think is um, interesting research opportunities in that area. Right. So um, David Tees has this paper in 2007 uh, on the micro foundations of uh, dynamic capabilities, which is about sensing, seizing, uh, and what's the, what's the third aspect? Well, there, there's a third component of those micro foundations, right? But in, in that article, when he talks about the micro foundations of dynamic capabilities. What he really means is that the company has in place routines for sensing, routines for seizing and so on. And so it doesn't, the many micro foundations uh, aspects that he doesn't cover because after all routines are not individual level, they are group level or unit level or whatever, or even organization level. Uh, that he has some later research in which he looks into top management uh, teams and how they may support dynamic capabilities. So to what extent does, um, how, or how is sensing say related to top management teams and 
um, or seizing? Could it have to do with fault lines in the top management teams, things like that? But I, I think that when David's developed with, with Gary Pisano and Amy Schuen, the dynamic capabilities approach, what he really wanted it to be was to be like the strategic management equivalent to evolutionary economics. If you read the, the original paper from 97, it's, it's crammed with references to evolutionary economics and it talks about complexity and change and uncertainty and dynamics and so on. And it seems to me that in terms of the micro foundations of dynamic capabilities, there's still a huge unexploited potential there. So this goes back to what I said earlier about um, how we cope with uncertainty being a frontier issue of behavioral strategy. I also think it's very much a frontier issue when we talk about dynamic capabilities. So how, again, how do, how, how do executive teams make sense of uncertainty? Uh, what are the stories they, they, they tell? What, uh, what are the beliefs they stick to? Perhaps some of those industry recipes to use J.C. Spender's expression. So what, what parts of the industry recipe will have to go? Uh, what are the new parts of the, the way we think about our industry and our competitors and so on that we add and so on? And we just don't have good thinking about this or good theories and we certainly don't have a good formalism for thinking about it. What we have that is rigorous and precise and so on is Bayesian updating. But that's, again, that's, it's probabilistic. It doesn't really tell us where our priors come from in the, first, in the first place. And perhaps what dynamic capabilities in highly uncertain environments are really about is you know, picking the right priors and then updating them in, in, in a clever way, perhaps. So I, I think there's still a lot we can say about um, the, the micro foundations of dynamic capabilities, particularly with respect to the sort of epistemic aspects of it. So Russ has commented here, um, and Russ, you could pipe up if you'd like, um, about the how it's strange that dynamic capabilities is disconnected with the literature and org change. Do you have thoughts on potential opportunities there, Nikolai, or why that may be? Right, uh, yes, Ross is right. But on the other hand, it seems to me that dynamic capabilities, sometimes it's, it's a label for a lot of things that are not very well connected. It's TMT research, it's um, strategic change, it's alliances, what we, what we, needs to move forward the dynamic capabilities ideas, I think, isn't more, more, more links to related areas of fields. What I think we need, first of all, is a core theory, core theorizing, that will allow us to truly understand what dynamic capabilities are in terms of how people individually and jointly um, react to, make sense of, cope with uncertainty. Of course, there's more than that because, I mean, this is mainly the sensing part of dynamic capabilities, but, you know, I happen to think that may be the most interesting part of it. 
So we have another question on micro foundations of dynamic capabilities, and that's asking your opinion about the non-cognitive uh, micro foundations. And uh, okay. they, in this question, they're bringing up the framework proposed by Nyack et al. I don't know that paper. Uh, I can try, there's a link there. But in general, your thoughts on non-cognitive microfoundations while you're scanning them? So what, what are non-cognitive microfoundations? All right, so the way they talk about them is uh, uh, these are sensitivities and predispositions that precede cognitive representation. Uh, these sensitivities and predispositions are typically transmitted and shared unconsciously through social practices rather than through formal instruction. Yeah, but that's interesting because it it, um, it partly addresses what I talked about earlier. When when we um, when 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 we um, when we sense and we when we make sense of things and form beliefs. Uh, and revised beliefs, of course, those beliefs and the revision process comes come from somewhere, right? And I, I think that's what they're talking about here in this paper, the, the antecedents of, of those cognitive processes. I don't know the paper, but I'll, I'll definitely study study it. So many thanks for the, okay. for the reference. Okay, just came up. Yeah, it's a very, oh, recent, yeah. very recent paper, yeah. I can see that. Okay, um, we have a question back to your writing. So the question is, what percent of time do you spend on rewriting versus rewriting every day? It's hard to see here, but yeah, I can see them. Probably 50-50, uh, I guess. Up here. Um, 50%, may I ask everyone to mute, please? 50% exploration, 50% exploitation, if you like. That's, my, that's the way I try to be ambidextrous. <laughs> and do you find your search to be local or <laughs> is it just a that's definitely a competence trap <laughs> <laughs> yeah. okay in looking at the chat uh michael webline you posted a couple of references here do you want to comment or do you have a question for nikolai i i i could have a question for nikolai i benefit from it this is just I think that was an interesting conversation about dynamic capabilities. And those are two papers that came to mind. That maybe wouldn't Thanks, Michael. There's some yeah. on the group. I think one of them is in, in your journal, isn't it? That is true. Yeah. Dave, Dave Collis has written for us, and that's a, that's a, he takes a, a, a take on, uh, he, he goes through both the virtues and limitations of dynamic capabilities, but then also talks through the Donaher case and sort of right. thinking about how the organization structure as well as the cognitive tools of that management team affected their adaptation ability. I found it very similar to Gary's paper, which I had seen on the HBS website for years. And I think is a really, what's interesting about Gary's paper, which is published in ICC, is he talks a little bit about how he thinks the dynamic capabilities agenda was sort of, I think he actually uses the word hijacked, um, but in a way that your, your, talk, your comments were talking about, so. Uh, Thank you for uh, volunteering this time. Great, great to hear your, uh, your voice and thoughts. So we have a question here that's pretty specific, Nikolai. It says, do you have a particular paper in process that is rooted in G.B. Richardson? 
Every time I read his work, there's something newly provocative. I, I actually do. So I, I, I uh, mentioned that I'm working on something with, with Jens Schmidt, who some of you may know is a very, very smart young guy at Alta University and also with David Tees. And this is on ecosystems and on ecosystem emergence. And Jens and I have another paper also on, on, the, same, uh, on the same topic. And Richardson's thinking is extremely relevant to this particular very important, very topical issue of ecosystems and how ecosystems emerge. Because uh, Richardson's central interest is really the coordination of investments, the coordination of competitive investments, the coordination over time of complementary investments, and how that is brought about. So he was, he was a, a British economist and his particular interest back in the 50s and 60s was actually competition policy. And uh, he, he thought that things like price agreements and cartels and so on, things that we condemn nowadays, right? We don't like them. They were actually great things because they, help, they helped producers stabilize investment expectations. So that's, that, that's what he was trying to do. Uh, but of course, we're not talking about competition policy in, in, in our work on ecosystems, but, uh, on, uh, but rather about how um, entrepreneurs can, uh, can build systems of complementary and partly competitive investments, which after all business ecosystems are, right? So yes, uh, Randy, the, the, the answer is we do have a couple of papers which I'm happy to send to you uh, that are both rooted in the thinking of George Richardson. David Tees is, is, is one of the co-authors here, and he, he's, he's also someone who has, who has uh, raved almost about Richardson's contributions because to some extent they, they um, anticipated Tees' own, own work on complementary investments in the 1986 research policy paper, which has, which has been so super, super influential in our field. Okay, we have um, another question back to dynamic capabilities. So aren't dynamic capabilities kind of capability for exploration, March 91, uh, which is a challenge because of uncertainty? Yeah, yes, that's a lot of, there are a lot of relations between these two concepts also. But T's also, in addition to sensing, and what, what is it, is it transforming, I, I, I think, which is the third, micro foundation, then there's also seizing, which is more exploitative to use March's terms. So I guess the, uh, there's not, there, there isn't perfect congruence between these concepts. It's not, they're not strictly speaking the same thing, but they, they're clearly related. It's a good question because I, I don't recall anyone explicitly comparing March's 91 piece and subsequent thinking on exploitation exploration uh, to uh, dynamic capabilities. But I'm sure Michael, Michael will know if, if, if someone have, has done that. Okay, uh, Michael? I think that was Xavier's question, but- um, It was, but you unmuted. Okay. So okay. I'm gonna yeah. give you an opportunity. Yeah. <laughs> I think that was Xavier's question, but I think well maybe that maybe a subset of us can get around and and do that more uh, some some provide some more systematic statement about that. But uh, right. I'm not sure what I would say has been. I mean, I, I think yeah, my sense is there is a you know a, a quite a as in so much 
there's too much relabeling in our field, but um, you know, there's an opportunity to see what is truly unique between the two concepts. Right. So Nikolai, I missed a question that I'm gonna go back to. Um, the question is, if you have any suggestions to early stage researchers who are sympathetic to the Austrian school, so the non-interventionist agenda and highly conservative and proposing policy implications, uh, when working with co-authors, not selected by themselves, who are used to following uh, the Keynes approach. Oh, wow. particularly in the UK. So this is a very specific question for you. Indeed, it's extremely, it's, it's extremely specific. Um, <laughs> so I, I, I think it's about what, how, how do you manage co-authorship, this uh, co-authorships when, when there's a substantial amount of political disagreement in the team? Isn't that the question? Yes. It well, seems I, to be. Politics is too, uh, forget about politics is my advice. No, I, I, I don't care about the politics of my co-authors at all. I couldn't care less, literally. Uh, don't, don't let it poison your, your, your hopefully good co-authorships, uh, co-authorship co uh, relations. So. Uh, okay, we have another question. Uh, would you like, whoops, it just flipped over there. Uh, would you like to share your thoughts about the current discussions on the purpose of corporation? The purpose of the corporation? I don't see the... Uh... Right. It's a question from Der Chow Chen. Right. Well, I, I, I guess I'm, I'm actually pretty sympathetic to Friedman's original message, which I think has been badly misunderstood. Um, Friedman was not against philanthropy at all. Uh, what he was specifically criticizing in that little four-pager in, uh, was it New York Times back in 1970, was uh, owners using corporate funds uh, without getting the express permission of the owners. But if, if the owners were okay with the managers doing CSR and so on, Friedman would be perfectly fine with it also. So what he, he really was talking about, he didn't use those, those words, but he was talking about um, a, a principal agent problem. Uh, and that, that, was his, that was his main concern. And that's, you know, that's why he, he, he argued that uh, the, the main responsibility of a company is to maximize profits. But I think you can say much more in favor of, of having super simple corporate objectives. I mean, uh, you, you can have all sorts of very nice objectives, but uh, the actual management challenges of aligning all those many different objectives, um, you know, you, you have stakeholder groups with very different interests. How do you exactly align those interests? The, the great advantage of having one stakeholder group, namely the shareholders, more or less in charge, uh, is that it, it's relatively easy to coordinate actions between them because they, they have the same objective, namely maximize profits, right? So I, I certainly believe there is a, a, a role in the economy for cooperatives and for also for firms with more than one objective and so on, but that, that just situations where it makes perfect sense to have 
uh, ownership by shareholders and the pursuit pursuit of good old-fashioned uh, traditional profit maximization. That said, I also recognize that you know having a, say pro-social corporate missions may make a lot of sense, but they again they may make a lot of sense because they feed into profitability. It's pretty banal, but uh, uh, this is something that I've explored with Sigvard Lindenberg and. Um, Julian Birkenshaw, namely that you know having pro-social missions and pursuing these nice things and so on may have nice spillover effects on, on employee motivation, for example. Okay, uh, I encourage you uh, all to think of some questions because we still have about 15 minutes and we have this rare opportunity to get to pick Nikolai's brain here, uh, and we've run out of them in the chat. Um, I have another question for you just in general, Nikolai. So a lot of the advice uh, that we've been asking you about have been for um, more junior researchers. But what about uh, your advice to associate researchers? So we're finally past the tenure hurdle, uh, but now we're getting a lot more um, a lot more demands on our time. So how would you advise an associate uh, as far as being successful and reaching that next level and remaining productive? <laughs> well, I, I, I think it's very, very important to be able to say no. Uh, you, you don't need to invest all your time in service, for example, I I, I see. I think some people substitute too much towards service, for example, and they're just too generous with their time. Uh, that's that's a very nice uh, book by Adam Grant, in which he looks at basically the relation between pro-social behavior and individual performance, and uh, it's an inverted U. Right. So if if you are totally non-pro-social, it's going to harm you. But if you're too pro-social, if you do too much service, uh, that's going to harm you too. So very simple advice, I would say, super hands-on, do maximum one journal review per month, for example. You don't need to attend all seminars in your department, but you certainly need to attend every second, I would say. <laughs> particularly those of, of more junior colleagues. Um, be, don't uh, accept all seminar invitations. Be very picky, I guess. Occasionally skip one of the big conferences. because It's, it's nice to attend the Academy of Management annual conference or the Strategic Management Society conference or the Academy of International Business, but surely you don't need to attend all three in a year. Perhaps one is sufficient because, I mean, it's, it's basically, a, particularly for us in Europe, going to, to the US for, for an AOM, I mean, it's, it's a week invested, plus all the preparation, easily two more weeks. That's a lot of research time that you're burning there. Uh, so, yeah, I think it's very simple and low practical. Build your keep your keep your pipeline in order. Set up a you manage it through some kind of Excel file or similar. Or have a big table in your office with your projects. 
so that that your colleagues can you can you can you can mobilize the invisible social forces in that way, right? <laughs> your colleagues come into your office and well, you're still working on that project. Hmm. So we have a couple of more questions here. Uh, one from Tim. What did you learn from your time at Bocconi? That's a great question. <laughs> I learned some Italian to be sure. No, this was, uh, it was a super, super uh, well-organized university, extremely smoothly running machine. Very, very, very professional in its approach at all levels. Uh, it was actually nice to come back to CBS uh, and to notice that CBS in the meantime had caught up a great deal because when I, when, when I, when I uh, went from CBS to, to Bocconi, I was shocked by the sheer professionalism at, at all levels, literally. Uh, but, you know, CBS has been very, very good at, at catching up in the meantime. So that was extremely pleasant to experience. There were some fantastic uh, colleagues there, Alfonso Gambadella, you all know him, um, Arnaldo Camufo, Claudio Panico, uh, Carlos Salvato, great scholars, great friends. I'm still co-authoring with some of them. Uh, I, I would very much like to go back and visit Bocconi again this fall when, when the whole COVID situation clears up a bit. But you know, uh, I, I didn't learn, learn anything specific. It was just a very, very good uh, European environment. One of, one, one of the best to be sure. Okay, we have another question. Uh, this is back to Micro Foundations uh, from Daniel Rapp. So the thrust of the Micro Foundations impulse, uh, the summer of the three conferences about it seemed to be reductionist, uh, that, were, that there were no organizational level phenomena which had any existence aside from the behavior of individuals. Was this impression correct? Do you still believe this? So this is the, the whole supervenience discussion. Um, the, the micro foundations claim is that, that all aggregate phenomena, all organization level phenomena can be reduced to the actions and interactions of individuals. That, that's what it says. And then more, more normatively that for management research to progress, it should be, be reduced in this way. So yes, it, it is reductionist. It is reductionist. But it's, it's not saying, Daniel, that um, aggregates have no role in explanation. So if you look at the, the, the basic Coleman bathtub, you know, the, the familiar boat figure, Coleman basically starts up in the north uh, western corner with, with, with collectives, with what sociologists would call social facts, right? That's, that's in a sense that's the starting point. Of course, he would also argue that those social facts can turn, can be reduced to individuals and their interactions. But in a sense, it begins from aggregates. The basic claim is that there are no, my interpretation of micro foundation is that there is no macro causality. There's no macro variable A that literally causes another macro variable B. It's all mediated through micro. That, that's the claim, I think. So I, I don't see it as particularly um, controversial, actually. 
So uh, here's an interesting question and one that I'm interested in hearing your answer to. So what is the exciting work being done in TCE these days? Other than you, who is doing the work? Yeah. Wow. Um, that's, I, uh, that's Jackson. Jackson Nicholson is really, he's been pushing the boundaries of TCE right from the start of his career. And it's, you know, it's, it's very funny because for a long time, Jackson was thought of as the most orthodox TCE guy around, even more orthodox than the Pope himself. <laughs> but in, the, in actuality, already in, a, already in his, uh, his doctoral dissertation, he was doing very, very um, innovative TCE work, going much beyond application and really pushing the boundaries of, of, of TCE. And of course, the problem solving approach is very much about this. Then there's Libby's work on, 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 say, framing of exchanges in, in relations between companies and our work on framing of transactions within companies and, you know, uh, um, comparison biases between units and employees in corporate hierarchies and so on. Uh, what else is there? Yeah, that's, you know, that's what comes immediately to mind. As, as, as the exciting work. But of course, much of Jackson's work on, on the problem solving stuff has been around since 2004, but I, I think it's, it could and should be more recognized than, than it is because it's, it's quite important work. So you and I have discussed uh, that there seems to be a decline in using that perspective. Why do you think yeah. that is? And how do you think it could be applied? <sighs> That's interesting. When I started going to the Academy of Management conferences, this is the end of the 1990s, around 2000, basically. Uh, at least in the, uh, the business policy and strategy division, it was TC, 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 and TC again. The majority of the sessions, at least that's how I remember it, had some TC content. But I don't really see that to the same extent nowadays. There's very little... Um, TCE work that is being presented, but perhaps it, it, it's, a, it's an effect of many things. I mean, 20 years ago, economics was still the dominant discipline in strategy to be sure. But since then, uh, psychology has become much more influential via behavioral strategy and so on. Sociology has become enormously influential in strategy also. And perhaps, you know, economics perspectives have been a little bit squeezed and TZ in particular may have become, you know, been there, done that-ish, right? Uh, but at least the paper that we, we hopefully will, will get out soon, Libby, is basically saying, hey, there are many, many things, even in traditional TZ, that we, we still don't know about. So to exemplify, um, what are really the causes of hierarchical failure, for example? I mean, this is still something which is very ill understood in transaction cost economics, uh, which, is, which is strange because uh, transaction cost economics is fundamentally comparative. So we compare the way transactions are organized in markets, hybrids and hierarchies, which means that you've got to understand the cost and benefits of those alternative governance structures. And you, you actually have a problem if you don't fully understand the cost, the, the potential failures of one of those governance structures, named the hierarchy. And at least that's what he, Libby and I argue in this paper that we're talking, I'm talking about here. 
we haven't really understood uh, those those failures very well. And of course, we try to construct a little story that uh, illuminates those failures and what can be done about. So still a lot to do, but I, I, I think it has become too mainstream in a sense. It's a little bit like resource dependency theory, for example. Also a theory that was enjoyed a lot of general support and has become um, widely accepted, but you don't see it much used anymore. Almost like bypassed, been there, done that. Okay, we have uh, another question here. Uh, what are the two to three most interesting fields for future research and business model innovation for you? I can't see, could I see the question. Could you um, repeat, please? Sure. It's uh, what are the two to three most interesting fields for future research in business model innovation? Yeah. I think uh, empirical work in this area is very badly needed. It's a fascinating concept. Uh, managers like it. It resonates with them. Um, but you don't see a lot of uh, serious business model research in the, in the top journals. There is some, of course, Rafi and Meet and, and so on. Uh, why? Well, because um, Theory is pushing, or if you want to call it theory, theory is pushing ahead of empirics in this area. So I think we need much more serious work on, on business models. And I, I don't, we, we don't really have measurement scales for measuring business models and business model components and relations between components in the business model. Um, I, if I, I, I'm not sure how, how I would measure things like um, you know, the, 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 uh, the revenue model, for example, is there a measurement scale for the revenue model? I don't think so. So before we can really make progress in this field, we need to have good empirical, before we can make empirical progress, I think we need strong measurement scales. Um, of course, there's also a lot of conceptual work to be done here. Understanding better relations of complementarity between different components in a business model. Understanding how a top management team thinks about its business model and how diverse, say, functional educational backgrounds of top managers influence how they think about the business model, uh, how, say, conflict in a top management team may influence the implementation of a business model, the perception of business models, and so on. There's still, there's still a lot to, to be done here, but I think that first and foremost, in order to make the important concept of business models more respectable, I think we need really subtle AMJ kind of empirical work on the subject. Okay, in our last couple of minutes, we actually have some fun questions for you. Uh, so the first one is, uh, what is your favorite city? I think I heard you mention Paris. It's Paris, hands down. So why? Why Paris? Well, uh, maybe because uh, Kirsten and I lived there uh, when our daughter was very, very small for, for six months. It was a great experience. And we were living in the, the heart of Paris and, and, and enjoying the city. So perhaps it's, you know, those, those sentiments are called forth by, by, by visiting the city, but it's just so unbelievably beautiful. And the next question is, what's your favorite dessert? Oh, uh, creme brulee, of course, French dessert. 
And then the last one is what are your favorite hobbies? Uh, well, uh... <laughs> tennis. I'm not going to play it. Oh, I was just going to ask you to play a little something for us. No, no. <laughs> not, certainly not with our preparation. <laughs> this is my, my nice Gibson ES-175 top jazz guitar, which I, uh, I try to play bebop jazz on. It's a little, it's a little bit like research, very, it's, it's, it's Ill, Ill understood by most people <laughs> and, it's, and it's, it's quite difficult and challenging. And is jazz then your favorite genre of music? No, I, I'm pretty eclectic, but I, I mainly listen to classical and jazz, yes. Okay. Well, I think we're close to our time here. So um, I just wanted to give you a few minutes to have a few last words, if you'd like, Nikolai. Well, um, I, I think I've, I've, I've said enough, basically. <laughs> <laughs> so let's, let's, just, let's just stop here. Well, it's been a pleasure and very good, very good, funny questions also. Well, I want to thank you great, all. Great to see so many. Uh, familiar faces that I haven't been able to see because of the stupid COVID situation. <laughs> I hope to interact with many, many of you soon in the future. And I want to thank you all for giving us this opportunity, me this opportunity to interview Nikolai. Uh, I don't know if you know Nikolai, but many people ask me what it's like to work with you. And it's always very curious. And I think you pulled back the curtain a little bit here to how funny and interesting uh, you are and how thoughtful you are when we're working together. So thank you all uh, for this lovely opportunity. And thank you, Nikolai, for your really, really thoughtful answers to these questions. Thanks a lot all.